Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. There's a famous line from a Bob Dylan song that goes, she's got everything she needs, she's an artist, she don't look back. As a person who loves art, music and literature especially, I've always been haunted by that line. Does an artist really not look back? Is looking back somehow a threat to creativity? What about Proust? Did he ever look anywhere but back? My guest today is Jonathan Lethem, one of my very favorite writers since I read his early novel, Fortress of Solitude. He's also the author of Motherless Brooklyn, Dissident Gardens, and many more books. Lethem is an artist who experiments and explores playing with forms and genres and trying on different masks, but he also spends a lot of time rummaging through the stacks, unearthing things that are lost or forgotten. His latest book is More Alive and Less Lonely, a collection of essays about books and reading. Welcome to Think Again, Jonathan. Thanks for having me along. I, I like that The Fortress of Solitude gets to be an early book now. I mean, it was a, it was like a, a middle book for a long time, but I think it is. I think I'm getting so old that it's an early book. Well, it was early to me. That was when... That was when you came to my attention, uh, but you'd written, how, how many had you, did that you have was, before that? That was my sixth novel. Wow. Um, but you know, it's kind of true. I mean, this, this goes right to your whole don't look back thing is, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at how long you get to live and how, how much you become a bridge to the, basically to the dead past. But it's alive in your brain. It's alive if you're alive. And I watch this with my students, you know, these lively, marvelous 19-year-olds who are interested in literature. But they, the world of writing that I knew is gone. And it's never going to be recovered or retrieved. And even with living writers of great renown who are still operating, for them, like Don DeLillo, say, they'll talk about an old Don DeLillo novel like The Body Artist. (laughs) And I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's one of the ones that comes like, really at the end. But, you know, time is strange that way. And so, yeah, Fortress of Solitude is a really old book now. When you say, you know, the world of that world of writing is gone, that's interesting because I was thinking about what being a writer, uh, what being a novelist has meant to your cohort, your generation of, of known novelists. And I know you're all different people but before you comes <laughs> before you comes Updike uh, before that Hemingway you know you've got Didion there was there's a time in the not too distant past where we have these sort of like titanic figures and then you you you're still doing work on that no <laughs> you're un- still untitanic generation <laughs> no you're you're all still doing work on the, I mean I'm thinking also of like David Foster Wallace obviously in whose chair you are I guess at, at Pomona College right? yeah not the actual uh, physical chair but, uh, that one but, had a lot of it had a lot of stains from his chaw on it, uh, so I'm I'm actually not um, kidding it did have a lot of stains from his chaw on it so we got rid did of did it one. really. You had it yeah. reupholstered? No, they they threw it out. No, entirely. it was just a little too gross. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I mean, no. What I'm saying is, wait. <laughs> let, let me let me walk this back. Like novels on the scale of those, what I was referring to as Titanic authors, Titanic works, like are still being written. You have written some of them. What is different is somehow like what a novel means and and what a novelist means it's a different thing and i just wanted to hear you kind of talk about that well we have so much to talk about i want to like mess with <laughs> almost every part of what you just said so i mean first of all when i was coming of age as a reader 
I liked everything except the living, quote unquote, Titanic, Pantheon, male, the Mount Rushmore guys, Updike, Roth, Bellow, okay. Mailer, and others that you wouldn't think of so much anymore, but it seemed like they were just these giant, obtrusive, granite-faced novelists, William Styron and Joseph Heller. And I was like, that seemed like the most boring thing on the planet to me. And and, so, and was that a stylistic choice? Is that just because you were like cussed and punk? Or, I just, or, or well, you just I, didn't I, like it when you read it? <laughs> before I could even be strike a lot of attitude, or before punk rock even existed, you know, which I did adopt and with it a lot of attitude very quickly as soon as it was available. But before <laughs> even that, I was a really kind of fugitive occult reader. I liked Ray Bradbury's short stories when I was 10 right. years old. And I and then I was look, looking at other weird things on my parents' shelves. And I, I read Agatha Christie novel when I was 11. And I was reading Lewis Carroll. And then I blundered into Borges and Kafka and Philip K. Dick and Patricia Highsmith. And I was ruined for like the idea of <laughs> this t- kind of titanic, important, public, canonical novelist idea. It just didn't seem squirmy and weird enough to me. It seemed really like they were like politicians by comparison. I wanted like these <laughs> Boring, weird. Square. I, wanted, yeah. I wanted these weird like friends in my back pocket, these strange creatures that, you know, the books I liked gave me a feeling of something sort of mythic, dark, but also really f- fugitive. Like these writers might have been illegal to discover. <laughs> and, gotcha. um, you know, and of course that does sound like a hipster attitude in a lot of ways. Like, oh, it's, you know, I don't like the big popular middlebrow stuff, but it was really before it was an attitude, it was kind of a native appetite. And so I usually gotcha. wrote with a sense of at the beginning, when I was aspiring to write, I wrote with a feeling of kinship with these marginal creatures. These, You know, I grew up in subcultures. My parents were, you know, my dad was a beat generation painter, first an abstract painter, like all of the young men of the 50s would have wanted to be. Sure. And then he was painting figuratively in the 60s. My mother was a kind of political radical, a dissident and a hippie, basically a pothead, and but a huge reader. But she read, you know, in this eccentric way, and she handed me a lot of science fiction stories because she sort of thought, oh, if you're interested in my shelves, kid, this is the stuff that would make sense to you. You know, don't read the Henry Miller books yet. You know, read, read Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov. And I identified with margins and subcultures very organically. And so in literature, I didn't, I, you know, I was always kind of looking for that unknown quotient, that strange fugitive thing, which is to say, in a weird way, I overlooked the obvious virtues of, you know, a writer like Philip Roth, who became very, very important to me in my, like in my thirties, he was staring me in the face all that time. I could have been reading him, but he seemed too obvious. He seemed right. like he was, he was for someone else other than me. I mean, actually, I derived a lot of energy from reading him later on. And I want to say that, like, you know, a lot of the people that I might put in the category of carved out of granite figures of literature are also very weird in their own right. Right. I, I think can, that's it's hard. Right. I'd be hard yeah. pressed to find one. I mean, even Updike in his way, but Dostoevsky <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And Roth. Yeah. I mean, f- freak, real yeah. freak show, as you put everyone's, it. In, everyone's m- pretty much a Brooklyn. freak. In the, in the end. And the eccentricities of even the writers who seem very stolid and, and taken for granted, if you dig them, they're as particular and peculiar. Everyone arrives at this passion for literature in their own occult way. I think it is a very, right. 
you know, reading is is kind of private and eccentric and has like almost a masturbatory kind of intensity when you do it in the way where you identify so much that you eventually want to be a writer yourself. And that's every writer I know has that same passage in there. It's a long passage. It's maybe one that's not even finished of being a kind of a consumed by their reading life in ways that, right. that, that are unaccountable. You know, that's like, this is the most, I don't know why this is the most important thing I can do or think about, but it's defines me. And, you know, most writers were reading on their own lonely mission before they could say, you know, how it connected to what they were being asked to study in school or whatever the passion was. It's usually pretty eccentric and private. How did your journey go? I mean, were you following authors to other authors, recommendations of friends, that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of, that's, that's a really great question that, you know, you make these trails. I mean, I had this, I was lucky. I had this head start, which was my mother's shelves, which were really just picking up books on her shelves. I, you know, because I, of course I was disobedient. I read the ones she shoved at me. And then I also <laughs> read the Henry, the, the Henry Miller and the Erica Jong and the Anais <laughs> Nin books because they were full of sex. And I was totally amazed that that was right there in my house, you know, <laughs> that I could, I could, I could read Little Birds by Anais Nin. Did, you know, when did I was that give you a weird old. feeling? Did that, by the way, give you a weird feeling about, <laughs> I'd about, call it a weird about feeling. your mom? <laughs> and there was, I read a, I read a Dostoevsky book, a, a kind of off-brand one called The House of the Dead. Because, you know, my grandmother was a mid-century Jewish a Holocaust paranoic. So we had to read all all the books about genocide and and the pogroms oh, wow. and being sentenced to death in Russia. And, you know, so, so I was reading a lot of Holocaust literature and Russian novels and German novels just because they were there. Some of them, you know, I mean, I, I was trying to read Thomas Mann way too early. I, I had this experience <laughs> of reading a lot of things. I, it just didn't make any sense to be reading when I, when I read them. But then I was also going into bookstores and looking for like more of that strange quantity that I discovered. And so then I was at the mercy, happily, of the eccentric kinds of creepy literary people who run used bookstores in New York City in the 1970s. And I was hanging out with these people and you know, they would tell me what they thought was important. So suddenly I was reading a lot of beat generation novelists and beat poetry. and But also, yeah, what you said, I, I would look at the, the blurbs or the comparisons in blurbs and, you know, oh, if you like Raymond Chandler, you might want to know about this guy, Jim Thompson, you know, or Charles Williford. And so, so I would go down rabbit holes like that. I would judge books by the cover. I'd go and I'd look through the shelves. I liked them so much. I wanted to just be around the books. And I was working in used bookstores when I was a teenager. I forced myself on some of these places. I was like this, the kid who wouldn't leave the shop. So I would get a little job realphabetizing the section or sweeping <laughs> up the store or something. And I would take home books and I would just try things out. So I blundered into stuff from every direction or, you know, I was into movies and comic books. And so I would take cues from those things. You know, if, if a Hitchcock book was based on someone, I would be like, well, who's that? Why right. was Hitchcock interested in that? Who's Daphne du Maurier? That, and that would lead me to Don't Look Now. And then I'd be like, and there's this movie, Don't Look Now. Oh, it's by the same person who, who <laughs> made The Man Who Fell to Earth, which, by the way, is a novel. And oh, Walter Tevis, he wrote a book about a pool hustler. I, you know, and so I suddenly read a, all of Walter Tevis. But I was into def definitely this kind of rabbit hole reading where I would just find these obscure niches and... If you like that kind of thing, and New York City was full of used bookstores in those days, they're really inexpensive. You know, finding like all of Walter Tevis's novels. So I was interested in what interested me. And if anything, once I realized that there was there was a kind of injunction hanging over 
the idea of the, the literary. Right. Certain things, certain things were sub-literary. I just kind of shrugged and decided to choose the side of the sub-literary. Because if you, if you learn a little bit about the life of a writer that you're interested in, like Philip K. Dick or Raymond Chandler, you know, you right. read their letters, you, you start to realize they're contending with this anxiety quite a lot. They feel that they've been dissed by their publisher or marginalized by critics. And you, you're sort of like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> so, so let's see. I guess if there's two teams, I'm going to be on their team. And so I just assumed that I would be if anything, I would be stigmatized too. And I kind of had this like weird proactive program that I was like, let me just adopt as many of these outre signifiers as I can and just wear them on my sleeve and brag gotcha. about them and say, now this is what I do. And I think it's kind of literary. What do you think? You know, and just dare people to reject it. And of course, now, I mean, a younger listener to your podcast, assuming that anyone's ever going to listen to this that's younger than, than, <laughs> than you or me, will probably be thinking, why is he even posturing about this? It's over. Who cares? You know, everyone reads that way now. You know, I was on the right side of a, a skirmish that seemed very important, but has really, it's been settled. I think in any important way, it's been settled. The right people won. I'm not responsible. I'm not taking credit for that. I don't care if anyone remembers that I was on the right side. It's okay. over. Everyone but, reads so, whatever they want to read. <laughs> so then criteria criteria for good and bad, you know, is it just purely subjective, esoteric, like what, what works, what doesn't work? I mean, no, how do you, no, how course. are you deciding? Yeah. There'd be no reason to write criticism or to, uh, uh, right. you know, ad advocate for the books you care about the way I do all the time if there were no criteria that you believed were more than just your eccentric, the, the weird conjugation of your wishful thinking with the words on the page. I believe in the books I believe in, but not categorically, not like you should read dystopian right. science fiction. That's pointless. I care about individual books and the, and the experiences that they construct for the reader. And I believe in them as individual encounters. So I'm not saying let's all read by this program or according to this concept or structure or external category. I'm saying Look at Annika Van's Ice. That book is crazy. It's amazing. Right. It just does stuff to you that no other book will do. Now, it happens that you can make some sort of useful comparisons for Annika Van's Ice to like J.G. Ballard, early J.G. Ballard, a world that's kind of frozen and characters moving through it in a weird sort of somnambulist confusion, you know, this kind of existential angst combined with eco-catastrophe. But that's not really telling you that like, okay, so the only good books are eco-catastrophes full of right, right, uh, right, right. existentialist <laughs> angst. That's just saying, I love this Annika Van novel. I'm trying to describe it to you. Oh, yeah, it kind of reminds me of those J.G. Ballard books, but it's also, it's really modernist and strange. And well, you know, you got to read it. It's about the individual experience of the book, not, you know, there's a program that that's going to help you understand what's good to say that, you know, this author is categorically great or <laughs> this genre is categorically great, right, is is limiting and, and misleading. I'm getting you nervous about saying anything categorical. No, here's the thing. I get really excited about authors and I <laughs> and then I want, I want to read every last damn book they wrote. And sometimes uh, that's incredibly rewarding. It's like, you know, it's like deep cuts. You know, if you love, if Al Green comes on the radio and you're like, yeah. Uh, yeah, wow, yeah. Love and Happiness, that song really knocked me for a loop. It turns out you could listen to like hundreds of Al Green songs that are 
really almost exactly as good as that. And then there are other people where you're like, oh my God, that golden earring song, you know, um, <laughs> Radar Love, that kicked my ass. Well, you do not want to go on like a five-year deep dive exploration of the other, the B-sides and the the outtakes from Golden Earring. It just was a, a song that kind of did something. I wanted to talk to you about something really specific within this that this got <laughs> me onto, which is the, you know, because you're you're a huge fan of Bob Dylan and you were talking about how I believe you compared him to like Picasso, you know, in his going back to the adjective Titanic importance. And there's a particular experience of anxiety and disappointment that that I feel very strongly when I'm listening or reading through an artist that I quote unquote love. And then I discover yes, something of problem. theirs that I really don't like or don't relate to. It's a particular kind of alienation that I don't quite know what to do with. Oh yeah. No, I'm obsessed with this problem. I'm actually, <laughs> I wrote a, I wrote a whole essay about this in this book, The Disappointment Artist. And okay. the figures that I centered my, you know, that were, were my emblematic figures for that kind of the pressure of fanish disappointment when you've identified, over-identified with something, were um, Don DeLillo and and David Byrne, you know, okay. both of whom were so enormous to me that, of course, when I first experienced them as fallible, the disappointment was so crushing because it m- meddled with my personal, my self-construction. Because I was like, my personality is based on the idea that those are like <laughs> inf- infallible artists. So then you you turn that disappointment outward and you're enraged at them for being less than you, you know, maybe you got, maybe you were tricked. And this is a very strange dynamic, you know, because it means that you're, you're almost predestined to violently reject the thing that you love for being just a little bit human. And, um, (laughs) and I've, I've learned to circle back and be more forgiving. I mean, everyone has better and worse phases, books, moments, albums. And this is what it is to be human, to be an artist and learning to, um, to sort through that and recognize that there's this sort of, but it is, it's like a coming of age experience when you have taken someone aboard and you see them as so, I mean, you keep using the word Titanic, which is really funny because what is the Titanic except destined to go down? (laughs) It's always sinking, right? It's so big. It's too big to succeed. So, you know, Dylan is a Titanic for sure. And he's the great thing about him is that he tests you in every decade. He goes down at some point, you know, he's like, he's on the bottom of the, of the ocean multiple times for anyone who devotes themselves to him. He's uh, there's a Dylan song from what many people regard as the very most egregious, painful, (laughs) damaging phase of his work. There's a Dylan song that no one listens to called the ugliest girl in the world. And the refrain is I'm in love with the ugliest girl in the world, which is, you know, it's like, maybe that's what it's like to care for Bob Dylan is to one day wake up and be like, what the hell am I doing? This guy has no standards. He's just here to embarrass me. You know, I love Don DeLillo. I love talking heads, but I don't think that everything they did is equally good. Even once I sorted through my like teenage angst, disappointment, vicious attack of my hero cycle, I don't feel that Mao too is, it's just never going to mean to me what right. um, the names does. Maybe there's a reader for whom Mao too is the great one. But for me, it will always be the point where I was like, oh, he's kind of doing, you know, uh, my friend Jeff Dyer has this fantastic term for this, self-karaoke. It's that horrible <laughs> moment when you realize your artist that you've identified with actually has a few like dance moves and they're repeating them. And right. you're, you're really embarrassed because they're like kind of trying to, 
to do their own work. And you're like, ah, you did that better before. You don't even know what's best in your own work. You're just like doing karaoke. And then you, you know, but it's also very revealing. It's an intimate thing because what you're revealing is this feeling of how deep art can reach into you and that you think you might be the better steward of, you know, like if I think that an artist has abandoned their best work, as I felt, for instance, about David Byrne when he stopped making Talking Heads records, then you can feel like, oh, I'm the steward. I Actually, I'm the only one who knows. Even David Byrne, who made the records, doesn't know why those are so valuable. It's like only inside me. It's locked in my heart. That's interesting that that's the way you take it, because for me, the dread is more that it's it's like reading flowers for Algernon. You know, it's that it's that feeling that that it's the, you know I've got you know the, the 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 crackling wonderfulness that you may feel inside of you it may it's, not it's may not be away. reliable yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's um, actually true. <laughs> First of all, let's face reality. That is true. Right. All, all we're all getting stupider all the time. Right. But um. But yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you brought Flowers for Algernon into this conversation. Um, Okay, where do I want to go with that? The thing is, there's a a feeling of that eternal lost summer, right? Where the things that make you, that teach you who you are, are forever slipping out of your grasp. And that you, you know, and that you wake up stupider than you were. You Wait, I used to, you know, I used to flip this book, book open and understand every word and now it looks wrong or weird or or just opaque to me. And then you have to find the next hit somewhere else. And, you know, right. I mean, there's a Bob Dylan line. You can always come back, but you can't come back all the way. <laughs> you know, and, and this, this tantalizing sensation, I mean, you know, we're all haunted by it as readers, as writers, just loving a person, rooting for a baseball team, you know. When will Tom Seaver come back? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think he's coming back. I wanted to throw out another line from Outcast. Andre 3000 says, <laughs> is quoting Erica Badu, his then girlfriend, when he says, baby boy, you're only funky as your last cut. It's terrifying. Why, why shouldn't well, our, li- our, our life in art be as terrifying as life is? That was the kind of tension I was trying to get at in the opening spiel to the show, which is, you know, as an artist, and maybe we can talk a little bit about how you how you negotiate this, this tension between wanting to dig into the pure experience that you maybe have had at some point in writing something and wanting to push through to whatever the next thing is. And like, if I try on this new voice or this new genre or whatever, is it going to be inauthentic? Well, it's funny, you know, implicit in your question is this uh, ethos of the authentic. And I think that I've often thought that it was probably better to disable that. And maybe if if there was a choice, I'd, I'd better be inauthentic. That would might be more interesting because it, life is theater at a certain level. Certainly the life of writing has an aspect of the mask or of what uh, the critic, you know, Michael Bakhtin talks about, that we come into the public theater of the world and we look for scripts and representations and for roles we can play. And I always believed that play and improvisation and assuming roles and the theatricality of wanting to make something that was interesting, make something that was valuable, expressive, 
wasn't necessarily about authenticity. It might be about putting on a great costume and putting on a great show. And I've often had that instinct that the answer for me, the way to become something more than myself or something other than myself, was to remember to play. Uh, you know, when I wrote gotcha. for The Fortress of Solitude, which was, in some ways, it was a it was a voyage into self. And right. I used the I used the grain of authenticity to reproduce the world that I'd grown up inside, the streets I'd grown up on, and and the the schools I went to, the public schools in Brooklyn, and the confusions of growing up in New York in that period had reached into me and made me who I was. And I used those things as the fuel for this crazy story about you know a magic ring and uh, about two two characters I'd invented, but who meant a great deal to me because they they felt like they were containers for versions of myself and my friends and my brother was in the book very strongly and i was widely congratulated for for having become in some ways like a a more authentic writer by using these autobiographical materials huh. my instinct my instinct immediately following that was to go into the world of surfaces and theatricality and i wrote a very blithe uh, romantic comedy called you don't love me yet Interesting. Which was, you know, an exercise in writing about how life is also a series of games or disguises. I think it's actually the final words of the book are, uh, you can't be deep without a surface. <laughs> Which is something, something my friend Maureen said when we were teenagers, and we always puzzled over it. We, loved, we loved it, but we couldn't figure out whether it was itself deep or just kind of a, <laughs> was, it a, was, it, was it a Zen koan or was it a, like a one-liner? Was it a quip? Maybe it was both. It was like deep and it had a surface. So I don't look so much for authenticity as I do for some kind of mercurial essence where you connect, where the, you know, the board lights up. It's like a pinball machine. You want to feel alive. And that often means impersonation. Keats talks about the negative capability where you right. do something you don't know how to do, or you talk about things you don't know anything about, or you become someone other than yourself. You reach totally outside of your knowledge. So- but in the choice of the thing, the mask to adopt, there must be some sort of in instinctive sense in which this is going to enable me to get at something good that I haven't gotten at before. Yeah, maybe to think about something that I, I'm confused about, but attracted to. You know, I often think okay. of it in terms of desire, confusion and desire. The book I'm just about, you know, the novel that'll come next that's published in November is called The Feral Detective. And okay. I've been thinking about f feral children in a kind of half-assed way all my life. You know, <laughs> I mean, since, be since falling in love with Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan novels when I was seven or eight, you know, somebody left a stack of Tarzan novels in my, in my room. They weren't <laughs> even from my mother's bookshelves. I mean, there, there was the hierarchy in my house. I was like, oh, these, this is, maybe this really is trash. <laughs> it's, it's not on my mother's shelves. It's not Isaac Asimov. But I read them and I was like, ooh, Tarzan. You know, now, of course, those things are unbearably, they're everything. They're racist and misogynistic and formulaic. But they're also, you know, Tarzan was a big, he was like Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, Jesus Christ, uh, you know, <laughs> James Brown. There are very few, Bugs Bunny, there are very few figures that loom so large, right? And then, you know, and then you hit, then you find Mowgli also, you know, colonial, horrible colonial right. fantasies. But the image of Mowgli turns you on. It's weird and exciting. He can dance with the bear and he can go and steal the fire from the orangutan. Um, for one thing, he's, they're kids without 
parents who can do whatever they want to do. Absolutely. Unlike you. <laughs> so this, this image, even in its most rudimentary or grotesque form, always sort of spoke to me. And then I become like a teenage film snob. I start going to only European repertory cinema in, in Manhattan when I'm 17 or 18. And I, I like Truffaut and I like Werner Herzog. And I saw Casper Hauser and I saw The Wild Child by Truffaut. And I was like, this is something. This is a thing. What is this? I like this. Well, I mean, part of it, of course, is that I was identifying with ferality in children in a certain way that, you know, the, the kids in the Fortress of Solitude are sort of urban feral. And, right. you know, so I'd, I'd, I did find a vehicle for writing about it, but it still wasn't finished or it wasn't understood or discharged for me, the tension, the interest. And I began to realize that someday I was going to write something about, you know, this idea of the feral more directly. So I've just finally, you know, 50 years later, I'm, I've written a novel that kind of, you know, now does it completely encircle my fascination right. with this? I don't know. But it, so I wrote it out of this attraction and fascination, confusion. The question becomes, why does it mean so much to me? What am I getting at? <laughs> Maybe the book will tell right, me. Right, right, right. One last line of thought before we jump into the second part of the show. I, I wanted, um, I had missed Motherless Brooklyn when it came out, and I've been listening to it over the past, the, like the audio book over the last two weeks. I read... Uh, more alive and less lonely. But in order to have time to read both, I, I had to listen to Motherless uh, Brooklyn. But, but I was there's thinking another a lot of- There's another one of my books you can get in pill form and you could have been listening to one, reading another, <laughs> and in, ingesting a book as well. That's a very good process. I'm, I'm going to wait until the time when I can simply implant a, a, the Jonathan Lethem <laughs> chip in the back of my brain. But I was thinking as I was listening to Lionel Esrog, the, the, the guy with- Tourette's, who's the main main character, I was thinking about the way words kind of lodge in his head and the way that patterns lodge and the and 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 take him over compulsively. That seems similar in some ways to the preoccupations of a writer with language or with a story, you know, a concept like the feral child, this compulsive possession that, you know, a genre might get into you. Um, the moment I learned about Tourette's, I identified with it because it reminded me of my relation to language and the way I saw language as a, a plastic material that was sort of inside me and wanted to kind of pour out and cover my environment and interact with my environment. I felt that Tourette's became this splendid available description of something that I couldn't have named until I'd heard it that I felt inside myself. And so- okay. Of course, I was thinking about the way I already played with words and somewhat uh, helplessly or compulsively distorted them, twisted them, inverted them in certain ways that were almost, you know, there was a kind of aggression or violence, but also a very, very loving relationship. I mean, I thought about it sort of symbolically or metaphorically. I had no idea that it overlapped so well, you know, for you personally. Well, yeah, it's funny you mentioned uh, Flowers for Algernon before, because one of the things, you know, Lionel Esrog <laughs> is, for most people, that's, you know, they were like, they find him very lovable. And he's sort of the character that causes people to be disappointed in my other books, because I, I have never really, I think, written a book as charming in a way. Uh, it's an odd okay. thing to call it charming, but I think that Lionel enlists the reader's sympathy so strongly. And when I was trying to, you know, so everyone rightly thinks of that book as a kind of a, a nod to the hard-boiled detective story, and it is that very overtly, and he, Lionel even talks about Raymond Chandler himself. But 
when I tried to think about why, why does that book work the way it does, where people like kind of like Lionel better than they like me, <laughs> or you know, <laughs> you know what ma- what makes him sort of like a cupid doll or a, or a stuffed animal to people, and I realized that book works in a way like certain books that I you know I think there's a a tradition and Flowers for Algernon is in this tradition. It's the you know the lovable geek novel where the the character is treated badly by all the people around them in the book, but the right. reader knows how sensitive and smart and wonderful they are. And so the reader feels like this defiant love on behalf of the character. I think Holden Caulfield kind of works that way. I think that Confederacy of Dunces is one of those books. And I think Flowers for Algernon is like almost the paradigm of this, where you feel like, don't be so mean to him. He's great, you know, and so, huh. and I think, I think Lionel generates some of that same kind of like readerly, defi- the defiant sympathy that the reader feels. I've heard of psychological studies in which they're showing, you know, how early children have empathy for somebody that, you know, that's suffering or that's sad or that's in some way right. that's showing vulnerability. And I think that, well, let me say most of us are in the position <laughs> of feeling internally quite vulnerable at various times in our lives, but in the, you know, the the outside world, not really being able to perform that. So like when we see it performed, there's that, it's sort of self-sympathy in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. I think that's right. And I think that Lionel enlists people's self-sympathy. I mean, it's weird to make it seem like it's really just all about the reader's (laughs) own sulky feelings, but, (laughs) but I I think there's some way that you can kind of work and in my case, more or less accidentally, I ended up in that territory. I didn't really design it along those lines, but you can kind of work in concert with a reader's sulky feelings. I mean, that's part of how Dickens works too. If you read Oliver Twist, right. you know, right. can I have some more, sir? And it's like, <laughs> I love that little kid. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like a really, and I agree with you. It's a really yeah. innate thing, you know? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So this is a good point, I think, for us to go to the second part of the show where we're going to watch surprise clips from Big Things archives. And, this is like, this uh, is your life. <laughs> that's right. We've got various forgotten family members uh, of yours on tape here. I used to love that show. All right. This is Henry Rollins, and the video is called What is Punk? When someone asks you, what's punk? My reply is, if you have to ask, you're never going to know. Apparently, someone asked Louis Armstrong or Lightning Hopkins what jazz or the blues were, respectively. And apparently, that's the answer they gave him. So I don't know who said what to whom when. But a lot of times, if you have to ask, I think it changes from person to person. So what is punk? Eh, you know, everything from the Velvet Underground to Occupy Wall Street and anything in between. The, the kid who throws his spaghetti from the high chair onto his father's face. Hey, he's pushing back. He's sticking it to the man as he sees it. I like that. So that's punk. So is there punk rock today? Is there a punk? Is there a punk ethic? Absolutely. 
Where there is young people and vitality, you're going to find punk rock. You'll find it in the youth of Tehran who want a different future. You'll find it in young people in Saudi Arabia who look at Sharia law and go, no. <laughs> and I might have to die to overturn it, but not, I'm not taking this. That to me is punk rock. The questioning of authority, pushing back against established structures of authority, of government, of the way it is. Questioning anything and everything to me is punk rock. It's also very Jeffersonian. And so that to me is punk rock. You can ask the next person, he or she might tell you something different. So it is subjective. So is it present in our lives today? Absolutely. I find it in music. I find it in art. I find it in filmmaking. I find it in these amazing demonstrations happening all over the world. These Twitter-fed, Facebook-fed, uh, flash-mobbing revolutions that are happening all over the world that are indeed changing the course of government, ousting people like Hosni Mubarak and changing people's minds. So yeah, punk rock is alive and well. I like the way he's um, making it so political, but you don't need punk to be anti-authoritarian. So then it begs the question of if it starts for him with the Velvet Underground, you know, if it can encompass Occupy Wall Street, does it also encompass the Dada Manifesto? Does it encompass right. Uber Roy, the French, you know, Alfred Jarry? Does it encompass Verlaine and Rambeau? I grew up with um, punk came along as an incredible salve for me in a way. I was so I was born in 1964, which you know I've I've been always been very reluctant to talk about things generationally because I always felt like I was sort of a born out of time. And so when people offer me generational identifiers, I'm like, no, I was actually thinking about this other. My brain was formed in the 50s by Rod Serling and Lenny Bruce and Philip K. Dick and Jerry Lee Lewis and and Little Richard. I I that's actually where my brain was shattered, even though I wasn't technically around to experience it. That's Those are the like clarion calls for me. That said, so I did arrive on the planet at a certain moment and in a certain cir circumstance, if you were doing like generational stuff, people would say, well, 64, so you're in that weird, like you're either the very youngest baby boomer or the very oldest Gen Xer. And <laughs> I don't really like either of those categories. So I try to elude them both. But the fact is, if you had to pick one, what I am is the very oldest Gen Xer, because my parents were young enough to be boomers. My right. parents had, you know, Beatles and Stones and Dylan records in their record collection. Ipso facto, I grew up raised by boomers and you can't be one if you were raised by one. Right. So I'm not, I'm, I'm like the youngest you can be and be in reaction to that stuff. So they're, they were cool. They were narcissistic. They were Aquarians. They, I love them. I had to define myself against them in some ways. So the classic horrible choice is if you're going to define yourself against Aquarians, you're going to end up as a Wall Street broker. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. I was, I was dragged to all the Vietnam protests when I was a child. Those are among my earliest memories. So I'm going to have to end up what? As like a Martin Screlly type or something. Uh, <laughs> you know, Mike, Michael J. Fox. Well, that's not... <laughs> That's not okay. So I wasn't going to do that. So what was I going to do to define myself differently? Thank God, punk rock landed like this incredible medicine for me. It was like, wait, here was some music that was like anti-hippie and a, an identity that was exile, self-exiling, bohemian, marginal, but wasn't available to my parents' generation. You know, I oh, could that's like, interesting. I yeah. could bring home. Uh, London calling and play it really loud. And, and my father could be like, what's that noise? <laughs> so it was so much, it was such, such luck for me because, you know, my mother's favorite 
band was Cream. It wasn't like electric okay. guitars okay. were going to freak my parents out. But I did get to like cut my hair really short and put on a dog collar in high school. So the actual yeah. specific signifiers of punk, not the like Henry Rollins, punk is any anti-authoritarian gesture. I couldn't ever make that claim because I already knew that there was Lenny Bruce or Tristan Sara or or my my mother getting arrested on the on the steps of the Capitol and being thrown in jail in Washington, D.C. during an anti-war protest. I couldn't fancy that punks specifically invented rebellion, but I I could like the particular flavor of rebellion that they offered me. What's funny is hearing Rollins, who was himself a musician in a band, what he seems to leave out of the description is there is a punk aesthetic, which, you know, okay, it's a little less of like a grandiose thing than talking about like kicking back against Sharia law, but punk for me is also like, a particular way of playing an electric guitar, which is good. Right. I like that That there's, you know, it's like, th- you know, three chords in the truth, you know, and feedback. And I mean, album covers got cool again. You're like, I, you know, punk for me is, a, is also something like, you know, looking at a clip of the specials. If you're looking at like musicians on television in the 1970s, it's getting right. really earth toned and really kind of a lot of flowery, clothing and then you get like the specials with their peg jeans and <laughs> right. cool hats and short haircuts it's like that's also punk i came along a little bit after punk's moment but it was it was still around and i listened to sex pistols you know for a while when i was like i don't know 16 or something but for me it was too um fascist in a way it was just so it was so uh-huh. angry and exterior and and there's and, no, and there's no kindness in it yeah yeah and yeah. and and so so i ended up <laughs> subsumed into goth you know which was right. like which was you know the total validation of the mopiest imaginable feelings yeah <laughs> back to fla- flowers for algernon Nobody understands me. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Well, I mean, and, I need. I needed my own versions of that, obviously, too. But at the time, I was generationally at the right place, time and place to yeah, dig. Yeah. Uh, to dig, aggre- I needed some aggression, and I needed uh, to <clears throat> to carve out some space that was a little bit hostile. You know, one of the things I think about is like, you know, where is punk now? And I I love to believe that it's in you know Occupy, which is so meaningful to me and so such a right. precious explosion of political dreaming possibility political desire back into our our culture but i mean honestly rollins might not really like this if if he heard me saying it but the rollins kind of like you know that real first wave hostility self-assertion uh flipping off everything punk spirit now it's like in 4chan that's that's kind of where that right. part of, you know, and it's a part of coming of age to choose some version of that at some point. And then, you know, and then maybe to regret it. Or or if you're Henry Rollins to say that you were, you know, fighting against Sharia law, which, you know, it's great. It's great. In his own way, Martin Shkreli is also punk. Oh, it's horrible to think <laughs> of it, but yeah. Were you ever, did you ever have a band, Jonathan? Did you ever start not, a band? Not in a way that I'm going to feel good about <laughs> cl- claiming. I was in some bogus quasi bands. I wrote lyrics for my friends' bands oh, cool. a few times. And I'm proud of some of those. Uh, but the, you know, the four or five gigs where I stood in front of the mic and did my like sub Lou Reed <laughs> sp- spoken word rap singing stuff is, uh, is not something to be bragging about. 
I already, I'm sorry, sorry that I just said those words aloud to you. It just seemed to me that, you know, with your, the nature of your love for music that you might have wanted yeah, to or had that impulse. I've had a lot of little vicarious. I mean, I do like, I yeah. mean, I, I, I mostly really would prefer to, to hang out with either visual artists or musicians. And so in the doing of that, I've gotten into collaborations with both. I've written a lot gotcha. of lyrics actually over the years for different you know, I wrote a cycle of lyrics with Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth. Oh, cool. Uh, awesome. That's uh, makes up most of uh, like six, six of the 10 songs on one of his, on his most recent album. Oh, I'm um, going to check that out. I love yeah, Lee, I love it's, Lee Ro- I'm, I'm happy Ronaldo. with how it came out. It's a, I mean, that's just, you know, me having a kind of a dumb luck really that he wanted to do that because he's perfectly good at writing his own lyrics, but it sure. was a, a sweet diversion for me. But, you know, for better or worse, <laughs> what I what I do is write these novels. You know, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. I I found my form. It's a very gratifying one for me, and that's sure, for me. sure, sure. Of course, uh, it's good enough to be a fan. I, I play I play records. Let's let's take a look at the the second of the two clips that we're gonna watch. Then um, this is Michelle Thaler from NASA, and she's talking about the next stage in human evolution. One of the oldest questions I think humankind has asked is if there's other life in the universe, is it very, very different from us or is it very similar? And, you know, even when it comes to the microbial level, even like very small, like bacteria things, you know, right now we're exploring the solar system looking for evidence of life on Mars or on some of the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn. There are, there are oceans underneath the ice. And even if we found a microbe, I think one of the first questions is does it have something like DNA? Is it similarly put together the way we are, or is it something very different, even at the microbial level? And then you take that question and you you move even farther. I mean, what would aliens that are more evolved look like? Aliens that maybe even have advanced civilizations. And this is one of these things where I'm very aware of the limits of human imagination. You know, I mean, Einstein famously said, you know, the universe is not stranger than we do imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. And I think that a lot of times people say, well, we have one evidence of how life started and how life can exist. And it sort of makes sense that maybe something similar would have started on on different planets. I think actually when 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 you think about civilizations, aliens out there that are advanced, that maybe even have more advanced civilizations than we do, the thing that I really can't get around is that I think that the definition of being human is about to change a lot in the next century. I think that humans and AIs and computers will begin to merge and actually become somewhat indistinguishable from each other. This is not some Terminator scenario of the AIs taking over and destroying everything. But, you know, for example, I have a friend who has cochlear implants. He was profoundly deaf and then had cochlear implants put in. And I've gone to uh, classical music concerts with him. I remember I went to go see Carmen and uh, there were tears, you know, rolling down his face as he was listening to Carmen. And... He knows that he doesn't hear like a human being hears. There are wires that are directly implanted into his brain that stimulate the auditory section. It never goes through an ear. And he upgrades his software every now and then, and then he hears differently. All of a sudden, the sounds are different, and he actually hears different ranges depending on how his software has been updated. But it's, he always reminds me that what technology did for him was make him more connected, more emotional. Um, I remember somebody was colorblind, but they actually have an auditory cue as to color, and so it sort of changed the way their brain responds. The the implants that are coming, and they will be coming soon. You know, once you could implant 
artificial ears in people, why just hear with the range of a human, right? Why not hear with the range of a dog or a whale or a bird that can hear much higher and lower pitch frequencies than we can? That will come soon. And then when we can augment our eyes, why just see visible light? Why not see x-rays and ultraviolet and infrared light and everything that's out there? I don't think there's any way around this that the aliens we're going to encounter, if they are advanced from us by many centuries of technology, are going to be indistinguishable from AIs. And I don't think we are looking for biological life. I think we should spend more time thinking about what life really will evolve into. It may be that the biological being that I am was just a first stage in evolution, and a necessary and, and maybe even beautiful next step in evolution is for us to be augmented, and maybe someday to completely design our artificial bodies. So I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you would not be totally uncomfortable with, with these ideas. In my 20s, I was living in the Bay Area during the first boom, the Wired Magazine era. Gotcha. Uh, Mo the Mondo 2000 era. I don't know if that reference even means yes. anything to you. And I was always the one who was like, uh, wait, slow down. You're forgetting like your body. You're forgetting the animal. I mean, the thing I liked best in what she just said was when she talked about the expanded range of hearing that might be attractive, she talked about why not hear like a dog. And I think it's very wonderful and fanciful to think about. I can get turned on by thinking about post-human evolutionary possibilities. But, you know, this goes maybe full circle to your intro in terms of like, what about looking backward? What about right. uh, actually just trying to embody what and who we already are and have been? We're embedded in our physical, biological, evolutionary environment and our physical and biological and evolutionary past, you know, and our animal, you know, our companion species around. And right. I don't just mean like the, the house cats and the dogs, but all of them that we either do or don't take care of and respond to and or eat or kill or ignore, they're here to keep reminding us of something about ourselves and our bodies, which I feel like she's almost kind of running past a little, to my mind, a little too glibly or, or eagerly, which is, right. we're still, I mean, I guess I'm, this is a kind of like, what did Macron say to Congress the other, the other day, that there's no planet B we don't actually, we don't do very well with uh, vacuum and zero gravity. We die out there really, really quickly. And our bodies also, you know, I feel great for her deaf friend who got to hear the concert, but our bodies have enough time just handling the freakish, amazing fact that we are both specimens of animal nature and we've developed this insane intangible software or ghostware or vaporware called consciousness, which remains right. a total puzzle, right. experiencing ourselves as we presently exist is an enormous psychological, philosophical, ontological challenge that I think we should make sure we're continuing to rise to and abide with before we start needing to necessarily see on the infrared spectrum. It's sort of like, you know, needing like a new iPhone. We haven't even still figured out like what it really is to even just have like a landline. I mean, 
it's freaky that we are, have <laughs> closed time and space down through these technologies. In a book called Chronic City, I wanted to write about screens, how they were changing me and and reality and how, and I, I realized that I didn't even need to write about like Second Life or virtual reality, even just writing about like eBay, what it's like to follow, to like disassociate out of your physical body and be following an auction on eBay where like you are sort of on the other side of your computer hoping to get that comic book, that expensive coverless Batman comic from 1940 that someone else who you can't see is bidding against you for. And the weird, strange, dissociative, ontological freak out that you experience when you like sense that other person bidding against you on eBay, that that was weird enough. I don't know. I just don't need the hearing of a bat or a... And it's kind of like the vacuum of space. My body doesn't really want metal implants in it. I'm really not sure it's going to feel that good. And I've got plenty... There's plenty of unfinished implications about the human animal's situation as a technological being who's even made like cities... The things we've made are bewildering enough. I don't know. I don't need these new challenges in order to feel stimulated. I think we've got a lot of work to do to just catch up with the implications of like our coexistence with one another and uh, incidentally like whales and bacteria. You know, there's that great image of how when we do go out into space with this enormous technological apparatus that the the isolated... spaceman in his spacesuit doing a spacewalk outside of his craft, briefly existing right. off off the planet, that there's more non-human DNA inside that spaceship than there is human DNA inside that spacesuit. Just oh, the, okay. the, ba- the bacteria in his gut with which he c- coexists, there's your prosthetic life, not a metal <laughs> implant, but the fact that you are interpenetrated with other biological species in order to digest your food. What's that? Every instinct in my body militates against <laughs> um, uh, against uh, utopian desires that I nevertheless experience as thrilling. <laughs> but I don't really think that I I don't think I need the implants just yet. The problem of being a self among selves on this planet is large enough without without the hearing of a bat. <laughs> I would rather just meet a bat. That would be really intense to actually like spend some time with a bat. <laughs> How's that for a <laughs> that, that's a perfect that's a that's a perfect wrap up. And I'll 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 also leave the audience with the fact that one of my favorite essays in the new book is is about Batman and we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but yeah, I, I should I actually that. I saw your tweet about Batman. <laughs> Brilliant line, man. So Jonathan Leatham, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. It's been been a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, great to talk. And that'll about do it for this week's episode of Think Again. And that Batman quote that we were talking about, which is from an essay in Jonathan Leatham's new book, is, in a deeper sense, Batman's real enemy is joking itself mirth mockery he's talking about how the riddler the joker the penguin all of batman's enemies are somehow embodiments of humor and batman himself is in many ways the opposite of that if you're liking the show 
please come join us, talk to us on Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast on Facebook. And feel free to write me an email, uh, jason at bigthink.com. I love to hear from people who are enjoying the show. Anything you want to share, something you thought about as a result of an episode, where you listen, who you are, whatever, whatever it might be. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week with something completely different. Hope you can join us. <laughs>